0: Welcome to the Women Encouraged podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Berendrecht. We are all about growing in Christ and being shaped by his word. So I'm delighted to share these conversations with Christians who love the Lord, love his word, and are pursuing a life of faithfulness in him. I'm praying this episode is a blessing to you and that you'll be encouraged to apply the gospel to this topic and walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. Welcome to the conversation. Hi, friend. Thanks so much for joining us again. I'm so glad you're here. This summer, Crossway Books sent me a copy of Dr. Catherine Butler's book, Between Life and Death, A Gospel-Centered Guide to End-of-Life Medical Care. Now, this might seem like a curious and very unusual topic to bring you on the Women Encouraged podcast, but the reality is every one of us is going to face this issue in our lives. And what better way to face it than by looking at this through a gospel lens. I'm so thankful for Catherine's perspective on this. She really does present a lot of encouragement today for us to consider how the gospel transforms our view of life and death issues. Let's get started right away. Welcome to you, Dr. Katherine Butler, to the Women Encouraged Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Bethany, for having me on. I know you go by Katie, so that's how I'll address you during the our chat. I don't want to make you feel like it's overly formal. So <laughs> Katie, would you introduce yourself and share some of your story and your work experience? Uh,
1: sure, sure. So my background, I'm a homeschooling mom presently, um, but before... I was blessed with these wonderful kids that God has drawn me home to shepherd. Uh, I was a physician. I am a trauma and critical care surgeon, which is a fancy way of saying it was my job to take care of anyone who came into the hospital with um, something severe that needed the highest level of care. And I had a particular interest in intensive care, so I spent most of my clinical time in the ICU, which I loved because it was just such a privilege to partner with people when they were most vulnerable and to use the technology that God's given us um, to try to usher people back home to their families. I thought that was just such a wonderful, gratifying way to spend my days. Uh, But as I continued on in my practice and had more and more experience in the ICU, it became a, a daily occurrence that I would have these conversations with family members who were really struggling over what to do for loved ones. Um, who were on these very invasive, sophisticated technologies that we use, like ventilators and dialysis machines. And it just became very clear over time that the technology that we have can save life in the right circumstances, but if we're not careful, it can actually prolong suffering at the, when we use it at the end of life indiscriminately. And so When God called me away from practice and I made a new transition to a new focus in life, he also opened up space for me to write. Uh, And so I've fallen into a bit of a writing ministry, which includes um, discussions and writing on topics that intersect faith and medicine. And so uh, over the past year, I came out with a a book to try to help people navigate end-of-life care through a gospel-centered perspective. And I'm delighted to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm so thankful that you're here. I mean, this is, might seem like maybe an unusual topic for a women's encouragement podcast or you know, even a topic for a book might it might seem unusual to some people, um but it really does meet a specific need that every single person has. And that is to look at life and death through the perspective Of um, scripture and through the gospel lens. And I just am so grateful. My husband and I read this book. Um, We were so moved by it, actually, and so moved by different parts of it in different ways. And I'm really thankful for it because I think it actually serves in a lot of ways as a manual that you could just carry with you to the hospital. If you have a loved one in the hospital, you could literally grab this off your shelf and take it with you to the hospital. And because you have so many valuable, um, tools in this, including like a glossary of of medical terms, um, some really important, helpful legal information, just to th- things to think about. Um, so I am so thankful for this resource, and it's just something I told all my family members. I'm like, please buy this book. You need this book <laughs> for so many reasons. Everybody needs this book. But I would just really love to hear you share what it was specifically that led you to write it. Yeah. Um.
1: You know, what I, I kept seeing over and over, I would have family meetings um, with the loved ones of patients for whom I was taking care, sometimes several times a day. And what I would see over and over during these meetings that, was that people were often falling back on their faith appropriately to try to help them make some very harrowing, difficult decisions. Um, And what I saw was that they were really struggling because the the truth of the matter is that dying has changed dramatically over the past 50 years. You know, we all used to um, die at home and the end of our life reflected it's reality as a spiritual transition. We would have our, our pastor would be there, members of the community would come around us, our family would gather around us, and we'd be in the spaces that forged who we are and where we lived out our lives. So death was actually something that people were familiar with. But now it's become so highly medicalized over the past 20 years that the majority of people, even though if you poll people in the United States, they still say they all wish to die at home, only about 20% of them actually do. Most people die in institutions, whether it's a nursing home or an acute care hospital, and a quarter of people wind up dying in an intensive care unit. And so the whole process of dying is so removed from our day-to-day life that what happens is we don't want to talk about it. It makes us uncomfortable. And so then when the moment arises, families are just thrust into these agonizing scenarios where they're having to make decisions that are life and death decisions for someone they love. They're grieving and scared about losing someone they love. And then they have no idea what to do because it's all so intimidating and so foreign. And so the natural thing, and I, again, the appropriate thing is that they turn to their faith. But what I would see happen over and over is that in this maelstrom of turmoil, And emotions people would cling to one principle and ignore the overall arc of the Bible and Mm. I can give you you know an example you would have um, someone say well you know the Bible teaches me that killing is wrong so we have to do everything at all costs even if treatment is futile we have to because life is sacred and we need to do everything or I would encounter uh, families who would say my loved one said let god take me when he's going to take me and they would refuse things when we could actually make a difference and potentially usher them to recovery you know and and those two extremes people cling to it because they don't know what else to do and so i i wanted to provide something where it would go through what does the bible actually teach us about life and death and suffering and how do we apply these principles within A setting that is so foreign to our day to day life, and how can we be sure that the decisions that we make are made out of love and that are also God honoring? Um, And so that was that was the intent was to try to help people navigate these dilemmas with some peace and discernment.
0: One thing I really appreciated in the book was that you differentiate between um, what it is to prolong life and what it is to prolong death, and I I really appreciated that because that is such a I mean, it's kind of in what you just were illustrating with those examples, but that is such a misunderstood idea. Mm-hmm. And I think out of fear, a lot of the time, Christians um, make decisions because they're fearful of making the wrong decision. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know why I never mentioned this before, but actually, before I moved to Canada, I was a nurse. Mm-hmm. I had a very short career as a nurse, so I, w- I really appreciated being able to read your um your book and understand the, the concepts and picture them, um, in a real life situation. I was very grateful for that, but not everybody's going (laughs) to, obviously not everybody's going to have that exact same experience as they read it. Um, but I just think like even having gone through training as a nurse, um, there is that misunderstanding of what it is to prolong mm-hmm. death and what it means to preserve life. And it's such an important differentiation. yeah, I think it's I think it's very hard for people to understand because it's so complicated. and
1: I think popular media does a real disservice <laughs> because you'll see these depictions of uh, medical situations on sitcoms, you know, yeah. and they all come across as so heroic. You know, someone's heart stops and they come in with the paddles raised and then he sparks back to life. And and the reality is very, very different from what we see on TV, number one. They've actually done studies showing that um, reco- full recovery is depicted on TV and in movies about 75% of the time. Whereas when we resuscitate, mm-hmm. as you probably know for cardiac arrest in the hospital, the <laughs> recovery rate returning home after being in that situation is more like 10%. So it's, it's a big discrepancy, yeah. you know, but I think, I think it's also, also the way we phrase it sometimes as physicians, we're not very clear that the technology we use like um, a ventilator or dialysis or even medications to prod the heart to beat and the blood pressure to stay elevated. They're all things that are meant to support Organs, but they're not cures within them within themselves, and so they're intended to try to help support someone while we figure out a possible uh, treatment that can aid recovery. But what, what what someone's recovery really depends on is whether the underlying illness is something we can treat. And as an example, yeah. what I mean by that, um, you can have someone come in with respiratory failure and need a ventilator to help them breathe, and. You can have that person come in with pneumonia that's acquired from the community, which is very easy to treat, and they can go on a ventilator for two days, and the antibiotics that we give them will treat the pneumonia, their lungs will recover, and they'll come off the breathing machine. That's a very different situation than someone who comes in with end-stage emphysema who also has end-stage heart failure, who has disseminated lung cancer and then develops a fungal pneumonia, which is much more difficult to treat. In that scenario, the ventilator is not going to reverse that person's breathing problems and is most likely going to be a permanent fixture and at the end of life is something that's going to prolong dying without actually ever facilitating recovery. And so, I think we focus so much sometimes on the machinery and the and what we can do without looking at is this actually going to help to bring our loved ones home or not? Um, and and knowing that that we're not obligated uh, as Christians to chase after aggressive treatments that will cause
0: suffering but don't promise hope of cure. Yeah, that is such a, a helpful and hopeful way of looking at it because. Like you were saying about um the the purpose of those machines is to support the organs. I think that is such a uh, mm-hmm. misunderstood idea of when we think when we think when you walk into a hospital room, what do you see you know you see all these curative um of tools in the room, and that's just not um that's right not necessarily right. what they are and and this can be very frightening and and very and i i just I'm so thankful that you know you're sharing this because it is going to help more people to understand and to be able to love and to um, really take that gospel-centered approach to the end-of-life care. Yeah, I hope so. It's
1: just, I just, my heart goes out to families because you can stand at the doorway of a patient in the ICU and they can have all the same trappings from the doorway as the person next to them, a ventilator, all the, the IV bags dripping in medications, a dialysis machine, all the monitors. And they could be on completely two different trajectories, even though they have all the same types of treatments because one could be on the verge of recovery because we can treat the underlying illness and the other one might be dying because they're in multiple organ failure and we can't bring them back to recovery. You know, And it's so hard for a layperson standing at the doorway to make that distinction. It really requires talking with a doctor and with the nurses and a team to try to Tease out and understand. Okay, what is it that's driving my loved one's illness and threatening his or her life, and is this something that we can cure or not?
0: Yeah. For the Christian, um, what does it mean to take a gospel-centered approach to end-of-life care, and and how does believing the gospel actually transform? the way that we look at life and death issues. So I, I think there are four principles to keep in mind. And as
1: I said before, the tendency when we're so stressed is to cling to one of them and really ignore the overall arc of the Christian narrative, which is that we're saved in Christ. That's yes, the ultimate truth. Uh, but the the four things to keep in mind are number one, and this is the thing that people run to the quickest, which is absolutely valid, but it needs to be considered within the context of the other three principles is that life is sacred. Yes, our lives are a gift from God. Um, They are breathed into us by God. The the principle of sanctity of life is why we protect the unborn um, and why physician-assisted suicide is something that we can't embrace. Uh, And so when something is recoverable, if there is an illness that's afflicting you or a loved one for which we have a cure and you can completely recover, then we should try to embrace those treatments um, if possible, if they're not going to uh, encumber us with suffering beyond what we can bear. But the second side of that is that God has authority over our life and death. Uh, As much as we can prolong life and we have tremendous treatments available that have turned what were once death sentences into chronic illnesses, this side of the fall, we all die. And it will come to us all. And God works through our death even our death for good. And so our times are in his hands. And while when something is recoverable, we should try to preserve life. If we are at life's end and death is near, if we combat that in a way, we're denying the gospel. We're denying the truth of what God has done for us in Christ, and we're denying his sovereignty over our own life and death. So when we are at the end of life, we need not chase after futile treatments. We can accept when the end comes. The third thing, and this is this is where what comes into play when things are kind of gray. So it's Easy to make a decision when something's completely recoverable. It's easier, although it's still heart wrenching, to make a decision when we're at the end of life. But very often, treatments will kind of land you somewhere in between where you don't completely recover, but you improve, but have some kind of disability or bear significant suffering along the way. And this is where we have to really think about our call to love our neighbors and to love one another as Jesus loves us, which means that we should care for the suffering of others and that is a very personal question it depends on who we are our temperaments what we've required to walk in the Lord um, and what would be too much suffering for us to bear and that's those are the kinds of questions that we really need to talk to our family about so they have an understanding of who we are what drives us and what would just be too much and the, the final principle and this I think is the one that encompasses all of them is that Through Christ, we don't have to fear death. Yes, it's terrible. Yes, we balk at the thought of it, but He has been victorious over death. And our promise when this life ends is that we'll be with Him and that when He returns, He'll make all things new. Mm -hmm. And so, even in the face of these harrowing decisions, we have a tremendous hope that we can cling to to give us peace, even through all of this. Um, And so, thinking about those principles together. In any situation, I think can really help to give some clarity in terms of is this something recoverable or not? If it's not recoverable, you know, are we looking at the end of life? If it's not the end of life, but it's just talking about potential disability and suffering, what is it that would be too much for me or my loved one? And throughout, clinging to the hope of what Christ gives us through his death and resurrection.
0: So, in that third principle, are you thinking of a situation where? someone is, you know, maybe not wanting to pursue treatment for end-stage cancer or something like that. Um, Is that that kind of what you're meaning? Or can you maybe explain a little bit about that third principle? Like, what does that mean from a gospel-centered perspective? What does that look like practically, maybe? Right, right. Absolutely.
1: So I I have, I give an example, actually, early in the book of a gentleman that particularly stuck out in my mind who had multiple chronic illnesses, was very debilitated, had chronic heart failure, and he had um, a procedure done to remove a tumor. And it was a procedure he did not even want, his, his um, quality of life and his ability to participate in the things that he loved and the things that made life meaningful and the things that allowed him communion with god were becoming more and more limited as he became more and more debilitated over time and he was quite elderly at this point but he underwent the procedure for his wife basically because she encouraged him to but was very very clear to her i do not want to be on any kind of ventilator after the surgery because he'd had a mm-hmm. harrowing time in the icu before you know i should mention that ICU stays are associated with post-traumatic stress disorder. They're not uh, walks in the park. It's worth it if we can cure. (laughs) But to put people through this without the hope for recovery can be really cruel. Mm -hmm. And he had been there. And he said, I never want to go on a ventilator again. I don't care. It was too much for me. It will break me. I cannot do it again. And he then started to decline after the surgery. And his surgeon was very, very upset and said, we need to put him on the, the breathing machine. And his wife stood there with tears in her eyes. And she was this frail little woman just holding her husband's hand as he was there struggling to breathe, looking the surgeon in the face and saying, no, doctor, he doesn't want it. And she was trembling. She was so upset. you know. And that's one of those scenarios. What is the right answer? But th- the truth is he was nearing the end of his life. Would the ventilator have helped him? Maybe for a short period of time, but he had already very clearly voiced, this is too much. This is not going to earn me what my goal is, is to be able to go home and do the things that I love. And, you know, he was having trouble even reading the Bible by that point because he was struggling to focus and his eyesight was failing, Mm. you know, and he had made it very clear, I cannot take this. And that's when we really need to say, yes, the compassionate thing is we don't have to pursue aggressive measures
0: if it's going to incur more suffering than
1: someone can tolerate.
0: Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, I think you bring this up that this is really where the gospel frees us mm-hmm. from, you know, the burden that we must pursue any and every measure. Right. Um when when you look at it and say you no, know, God has been sovereign in this and and he is going to care for us in life and in death mm-hmm. and you know, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. And so because we're in Christ, we have even as as people at the side of the bed, not in the bed, we have that freedom to say, no, the Lord is sovereign in this. Right. And it's it's completely different from hastening their death. Right. That is a completely different issue, which we will get to later. Yep. yep. But to allow their body to meet the end, mm-hmm. that is not something that we need to fear. Right. Um and yeah, there's so much freedom in the gospel knowing that Um, Jesus has walked this road ahead of us, and we're in His righteousness as we walk alongside of our loved ones as they meet the end of their life. Amen. Yes, absolutely. So um, I think you probably already touched on these, but do you have any indicators that might signal to us that we're really viewing end-of-life issues from a worldly perspective versus um, one that's really taking into account the impact of the gospel in the situation? Yeah, sure. So The first thing I would say is that
1: my experience has been that many Christians often won't fall into a completely worldly perspective as much as just cling to one idea without considering the whole um, gospel arc, which I mentioned before. But in terms of how this thinking differs from secular thought about end-of-life care, uh, the one thing I would say is that there's a bit of a different approach to the idea of autonomy which is a really tightly guarded principle and actually one of the pillars of medical ethics in, in modern medical care. And that's the idea of self-determination. You choose for yourself what you want for your care. And it's something that uh, has echoes from the Bible because we are all um, born in God's image. We are all made in his image. And so we all have inherent dignity and we all have inherent free will. Right, And so that's a, there's a parallel there. But the, the key difference I would say for the Christian is that our uh, free will has a purpose Mm -hmm. and the purpose is not for our own self-edification. It's to glorify him. And so whatever we seek to do, we should seek to do it in the Lord. Right. And so it's, it's a nuance. It's just a different way of thinking where it's not entirely about, okay, what is, what is good for me? That's valid to think about in terms of suffering. Absolutely. In terms of, I can't handle, xyz that's valid but um it it should be nuanced and should be reflective of as as a christian knowing that i'm a disciple of jesus christ um what for first and foremost should i be thinking about Mm. and then the second thing is really i think that that in secular medicine there's no hope of what christ has done for us Mm -hmm. and i can understand the fear uh about death and the, the feeling of a need to avoid it at all costs because you don't know what's coming. But Christ for us has completely vanquished that. Hmm. And and I, I just, I'm so I, I get chills thinking about it, thinking about how he has transformed the whole process where this is a stepping toward him. It's a yeah. transition to draw near to him rather than
0: something to be f- feared and abhorred and to avoid at all costs. And when you think about it, like that, it's still an enemy and it's the last enemy that he's going to put down. But at the same time, you know, we live in this already, but not yet. Yes. Right. So it's all, it's all been accomplished for us and it will be fulfilled and finished. And yet, so it is, the fear is just completely gone. That even though it's an enemy, it's not an enemy we must fear. Right. Because we have the assurance, you know, that he
1: loves us that much that he died for us and took on our trespasses. And we know that in him we're made new and we don't have to fear this, Right. you know, and of course the fear will come because it's scary and it's unknown, but it's not something that we need to, to push against at all costs, especially if those costs mean not being able to speak with our loved ones because we're uninvasive invasive technology mm-hmm. or worsening pain and suffering and confusion at the end of life. Yeah. Um, the Bible doesn't mandate we pursue
0: that. No, I think it's, I, I love what you were saying just a little bit ago, because it just, this whole issue just really highlights how secular medicine is, um, it is not, I mean, as, as much as, as medicine was taken on by Christians and, and hospitals were often run by Christians years ago, really that, that whole concept is gone. And all of those, I don't know where you you live on the East coast, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So, and I'm from the Pacific Northwest and almost all of the hospitals that had Christian names have been renamed, and they have been completely renamed to mean different things. Um, the Christian symbolism in the hospitals has been taken away, and it's just a sad state of affairs. And and when you think about the autonomy we're mentioning, really that goes back to this um, very pervasive idea in our culture right now that you belong first to yourself. right? And when the Christian knows wholeheartedly that they belong to Christ, mm-hmm. everything changes. Absolutely, but we can't have that perspective apart from the word. Mm-hmm. And so you get into this in your book. Can you just share how Bible literacy fits into all this and what do we need to know about who God is oh in goodness. order to look at this issue rightly? You just gave me chills because I'm actually writing a book about this right now. <laughs> Oh,
1: wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, what you described, first of all, to backtrack in terms of how medicine is, is such a secular, pervasively secular institution now, um, uh, is a hundred percent. I agree with it completely. Uh, and, what I find, and I don't know if you've seen this too in your work as a nurse or even walking alongside others, but is that that secular institution really challenges people's faith because they're dealing with things that are life and death. They're dealing with suffering and fear, and it turns up questions of God's goodness, but there's no framework to address it in the hospital. And chaplaincy helps tremendously, but mm. this is a study that was actually done in Boston that was done a few years ago where they looked at um seventy five terminally ill cancer patients throughout a couple of Boston hospitals, mm-hmm. four hospitals, I think it was, and they polled them and eighty four percent said that they felt that religion and spirituality was important to their coping with their illness, but only one percent of them said that a physician had referred them to a chaplain. Wow, it's just so far outside of the mind frame. Of clinicians to be addressing these this, these issues, and so as a result, people are left bereft, mm-hmm. you know. And so this is why, when you talk about biblical literacy, it is so key to harbor the word in your heart, uh, because when the, you know when things become very complicated and frightening, and the pressure rises, you need to know God's word to guide you, and also just to give you comfort. Um, Because in in some of the most difficult moments that we deal with, um, you can really lose sight there amid all the technology and the foreign vocabulary and the protocols of things, lose sight of the fact that God is still at work and what Christ did for us 2000 years ago applies now and influences us now but it can be really hard when you're ripped away from the traditions that you do every sunday yeah. to bring you close to god the prayer taking the sacrament singing hymns reading your bible those those practices that we do to stay spiritually nourished when you're in the hospital you're ripped away from them yeah and so it's just so crucial i think as the body of christ that we really are intentional about coming around those who are part of the body who are those who are neighbors who are hospitalized or who are sick um because they're confronted with these issues and they don't have those practices to lean upon um to
0: remind them of God's love throughout it mm. i don't know if i mentioned this before but i when my husband and i were kind of talking about this and um Listening to another kind of uh, interview you gave, just getting our minds wrapped around this whole concept. One of the things that he came away with, he said, "This is really a call to action, and it's not just mm-hmm. for ourselves. It really is, um, in terms of the body of Christ mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, coming alongside our family members, being aware, being educated." And you, you just so expertly uh, illustrate the confusion and the pain associated with the decision-making for loved ones. You've done the, a great job in this interview as well. But in the book, you just do an excellent job. We just You feel like you're just parachuted into these people's stories. And I'm wondering if you can just talk about what it means for a Christian to be an effective advocate for family members, mm-hmm. and also maybe some ways that we can come alongside fellow believers in our churches, our Bible studies, um, in these processes. How can we be an encouragement and a comfort to them? Oh, goodness. Um, I'll back up a little bit and say I think that
1: advocacy, I think, begins with each of us being willing to talk with those who are going to speak on our behalf. Um, because so many of us are going to be in a position where we can't vouch for ourselves at the end of life. Um, about 70% of people who die in the hospital can't make decisions for themselves beforehand and they require someone else to make the decisions for them. And that falls to usually family, uh, sometimes a close friend, whoever it is that's the next of kin. And because our culture is so averse to talking about these things, it straps people, loved ones, with just horrific uh, burdens in terms of trying to tease through and make the quote unquote right decision without having discussed with a loved one ahead of time what their wishes would be and what their values are and what's important to them. Um, and it has very significant ramifications because those who make decisions for their loved ones at the end of life in the ICU, it's been shown, have a year later high rates of depression, high rates of post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, and complicated grief. So it really does have a huge impact. So I would say, first and foremost, I think my hope would be that each of us would put aside the discomfort we have about talking about this with those we love and think about what our values are. Think about what we've needed to walk with the Lord, what has been meaningful in our faith walk over the course of our lives, and communicate that to those we love so that there's no ambiguity and it does two things. It helps us to ensure that we are leading the end of our lives in a way that's honoring to the Lord and where we feel like we can have some closure, you know, speak with those. We need to ahead of time, pray have time to reflect upon what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Um, And then also so that we equip our loved ones. So they're not completely in the dark and struggling because even if it's going to be traumatic no matter what, but if we can provide some guidance such that they don't feel like the decision is entirely on their shoulders, but that we've made it for them, that can help tremendously. If you're a loved one navigating these situations, the key is that it's the re- It's our responsibility when we're making decisions as a surrogate, not to do what we would want, but to try to think about what our loved one would do and say if they could still speak for themselves. So it's essentially being their voice. and. That in itself uh, is a loving thing to do. When you think about your loved one's values and what they would say if they were not incapacitated, you're honoring who they are as a unique image bearer of God. Uh, and then, as the greater church body as a whole, I think you know if you you know that there is someone who's struggling with these situations, come alongside them, pray with them, remind them of who they are in Christ. You know, and be willing. I think as a church too to talk about these issues and and confront them and confront the ambiguity of them, whether it's through programming, you know. But really, I think it's on a more individual basis, coming alongside those we love, visiting at them in the hospital, and trying to help them see first and foremost who they are in
0: Christ, and help them cling to that hope. That is really helpful. Thank you so much. Um, and I, you know, it doesn't get into a lot of specifics, but it's it's a uh really important principle that we just need to carry with us everywhere we go, really. Um, I mean, it's kind of something that applies across the board, whether it's in life mm-hmm. or death, that's really how you want to treat right? <laughs> somebody you're advocating right. for in the first place, right? Yeah. So we, I kind of touched on this a second ago, but physician-assisted suicide is such a hot button issue. Um, and it's a very misunderstood issue for some people. And in, I don't know what it's like. In your state, um, in Canada, there's a very wide range of perspectives, I guess. And in the U.S. too, there's a lot of states where it's legal. And and so I think there's this idea um, for a lot of people that if something's legal, it must be okay. Um, however, we, we know also from the abortion issue mm-hmm. that being legal does not make it okay. Mm-hmm. And for several other things, obviously, but you you make it really clear in the book that Christians are called to think biblically about this. Would you share your perspective? Of what physician suicide mm-hmm. is and why it's wrong according to the Bible, and just also what the Christian perspective on suffering ought to be, and, and the way that palliative care differs from PAS? Sure, absolutely. So, you know, when I think about physician-assisted suicide, I
1: I appreciate you actually using that term because there is a widespread movement to try to eliminate that term, to try to make the practice more palatable. And so people now say in the U.S., medical aid in dying. Uh, And I think that that is dishonest. (laughs) Um, The truth is that physician-assisted suicide is when a doctor gives someone who is terminally ill So it has to be that they have an illness that is expected to take their lives within six months, Um, a medication, usually a barbiturate, which is an anti-seizure medication, which heavily sedates and then shuts off the drive to breathe Mm -hmm. uh, in a sufficient dose to cause death. Right. And the idea is that it's for that person to take when they've decided they do not want to live anymore. And people will say it's the compassionate thing to do. It's because they don't want to suffer. And you take this medication and you have control. Um, What bothers me the most about trying to change the terminology to medical aid and dying is that it conflates that practice, which is not biblical because it's the active taking of life with the intent of taking life, which takes us back to the 10 commandments that we're not to murder. (laughs) I mean, it is, it is. There's no, no, you know, splitting hairs about it. It's the intent is take this medication and it will kill you. Uh, And it could be for reasons that are compassionate. That's fine but it doesn't change the fact that it's murder yeah it it conflates that with what is is biblical which is comfort care measures and palliative care so if at the end of life you are i dealt with this very frequently you are in the icu or the hospital and there's nothing more we can do what we will do at that point is change our goals from trying to do everything to save your life to transitioning to keeping you comfortable so we'll start some medication to treat your pain we'll give you medication if you start to become short of breath so to try to take away the air hunger and it's focused on comfort we don't do anything that's going to cause discomfort but what ultimately takes your life in that scenario is the original illness that's causing your death in the first place are you know yeah. if, you, if, if we switch to comfort measures and you suddenly rebound and you get better we're not going to give you a medication and say, no, you're, it's your time. <laughs> you, you, right. We're yeah. taking your life now. No, that's yeah. wonderful. Great. You've recovered. We didn't expect this. Great. It's And, and comfort measures and palliative care are just crucial during these times to try to make sure that we're not using very aggressive measures that are going to incur suffering with futility and mm-hmm. are a way of accepting the end is here Let's accept it and let's try to see what we can do to keep you as comfortable as possible. So hospice falls under this category, palliative care does. And the intent is to help keep someone comfortable as they die, not to actually cause their demise. And people like from Compassion for Choices and other advocacy groups of physician-assisted suicide will say, well, it's not actually it's not that they're taking their own lives and that's why they don't want to call it suicide. It's actually that their terminal illnesses. Well, no, actually it's the terminal illness is compelling them to take a medication to end their life, but it's that medication that ends life. It's not yeah. the underlying cancer. And what I find most disconcerting about these cases actually is because I think we are really missing the mark in terms of caring for people and the rise of physician suicide, physician-assisted suicide is the result. And what I mean by that is if you look at the most common reason people will seek out physician-assisted suicide, it's not pain. You know, we normally think of, oh, let's try to alleviate pain. That's a compassionate thing to do. It's a loving thing. People don't pursue it because of concerns about pain. They They pursue it because of lack of independence. Hmm. It's because they don't like that their life has changed irrevocably, you know. And so if that's the case, we're really failing as a society to provide good care and meaningful nurturing for people at the end of life who are struggling with terminal illness. If they are so bothered by being incapacitated and losing independence that they say it's better for me to kill myself. Right. You know, so to me, it's a red flag that we are doing things wrong. In terms of coming around those at the end of life who are really suffering, yeah, um, and and I, I I would just caution believers to, to not conflate uh, palliative care and hospice care with PAS. They're not the same thing.
0: Man, that's such a this is such a deep topic. I feel like we just skimmed the surface because there's so much that relates to this in terms of spiritual care. Um, you know how how uh, healthcare options have changed over the years, and and the rise in PAS um, for people with even psychological issues, thinking that this is the way to mm-hmm. to end their problems, and that it just makes me so sad. Um, and I don't know what thing what statistics are like in your area, but I know I've just heard so much from family members that live in the Netherlands, for example, um, just different different things that just. Shock you, but at the same time, make you very concerned that people are not generally being cared for by the church. Right. Um, right. And, and really don't have an understanding of the responsibility of belonging to Christ and what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's not just people who are not familiar with the gospel who are doing this. There are Christians who are engaging in this and they think it's the right thing to do. Right. 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 And it's,
1: yeah, it's a very, very difficult area. Uh, And to me, I think I really think it's a failure of on our part to come around and support those who are terminally ill and dying because the the qualifications for hospice are the same qualifications for PAS. It's you have to be terminally ill with a life expectancy of six months. Same thing, you know, so we're really failing, I think, to show people that their lives are have worth and have meaning and trying to help them to live out the, you know, their last few days. To the best possible quality that's acceptable to them, and focused on who they are in Christ, and showing them that love. If people think this is the best option,
0: yeah, I also was really thankful that you mentioned the, the Ten Commandments. Because one thing that I've struggled with, as I've heard this and I've talked to people about it, is that the the biggest argument that so many Christians can come up with to be against. Um, PAS is, well, it's a slippery slope. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually the wrong argument. Mm-hmm. We need to go all the way back to just saying, no, it's actually just murder. And that's all we need to right, say. Exactly. <laughs> you know? exactly. Yeah. I, I just, it's the intent is perhaps out
1: of compassion, but uh, the method, you cannot get away from the fact that no, this is, this is facilitating murder. <laughs> it's suicide yeah. and we can't condone it.
0: So when it comes to thinking about um, the end of our lives it's not something a lot of us want to engage in we don't want to think that death is coming um, but there is that is our a reality of like you said life after the fall um, and so even though we might not want to think about death in the future, especially for relatively healthy, um, we probably should and you make a case for this very well. And I'm wondering if you would explain for our listeners, what are living wills and advanced directives mm-hmm. and why Christians need to be thinking about end of life issues for themselves and, and really set up a plan. Yeah. Yeah. So as I,
1: I had said earlier, it's just really crucial to number one, make sure that you are living out your, your last days um, as you would wish to or need to uh, as a disciple of Christ and um, You know, when we think about spending our our last days of life, we all think about being home and being peaceful. But what is it that you need? Do you need to be able to pray? Do you need to be able to read the Bible or to hear hymns? Those kinds of things. And you're not going to be able to do those things if you're, say, on a ventilator and sedated. You know, thinking about the things that have given your life meaning is important for you. And then also to equip your loved ones so that they don't feel completely overwhelmed and crushed by the burden of having to make decisions on your behalf. Um, there are a series of documents called advanced directives, which aim to record what your wishes are in the event that you can't speak for yourself. And they come in a number of flavors. There are um, orders for physician orders for life sustaining treatments or DNR DNI forms as they're more colloquially called. And these are basically checkbox forms where they'll say, I will accept a ventilator, I will accept chest compressions, yes, no. The more helpful document that I would recommend is a living will, which allows you to expound upon each of those areas in narrative form. And I'm not sure how it works in Canada, Bethany, so correct me if this is erroneous at all for your situation. But uh, in the U.S., at least there are forms for every state. You can go to the state website, you can go to the national. Palliative Care Organization's website and they'll link to each of the forms. Uh, and it basically will have you expound upon whether or not, what, what circums- in what circumstances you would accept artificial nutrition or what, when would you accept dialysis and when would you not. So it allows you to expound upon it beyond just a checkbox, which is much more important because very often these aren't yes or no situations mm. unless you are very debilitated and chronically ill and terminally ill, you are most likely not going to say, don't ever do compressions on me. Don't ever do CPR. Uh, yeah. What is more likely and would be more in line with uh, who we are in Christ and with the Bible is to say, if there is some kind of insult that threatens my life that I cannot recover from, don't do compressions, right? You know, or if it's clear after doing compressions that I'm not going to recover or stop, you know, versus versus if it's something that's potentially recover, recoverable, please. Yes, do. Mm-hmm. And outlining those kinds of values is much, much more helpful than just doing a checkbox. But going through these forms with those that you love and appointing one particular person to speak on your behalf as well uh, is really important Um, When I say one person, what will happen sometimes is you'll have family members who will disagree. And if you have one person at least who you've spoken with about these topics at length, it helps to eliminate some of that discord uh, or at least help clarify the way forward. And also talk to your physician about it too. um, Because what's going to determine sometimes the right path for you depends very much on what your chronic medical conditions are and your health status. And it can change over time. Um, so think very carefully about what your values are. Uh, talk with someone, talk with the people you love who will be making decisions for you. And then talk with your physician and fill out a form and make sure that whoever your next of kin is has a copy of it, your physician has a copy of it, so that when you can't speak for yourself, there'll be some guidance for those around you.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for outlining that. It's so helpful. Um, I've really appreciated this conversation. I loved your book. Obviously, I made that very clear. I know, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> not to be but a little over the top or anything, but you know, I, I cannot, I can't speak highly enough of it. It is such a gift. Um, so thank you for writing it. Thank you for taking the time to do that. Before we close, I do want to ask you the question I ask every guest: What has the Lord been using in your life lately, Katie, to just encourage you in your walk with Him? Mm. So you probably find this too in
1: your ministry, uh, I find that God blesses me the most when he's pushing me to bless other people. <laughs> mm. you know, So uh, I'm teaching a series on the Trinity at our church next month. And so I was just reading Delighting in the Trinity um, by Michael Reeves and found it just wonderful, just the way he talks about our creation itself being an overflow of God's love for the sun and realizing how, what it really means to have a triune God. Um, And then additionally, I, I, as I mentioned, I'm writing another book and I had to delve deep into Job over the past week for one of my Mm. chapters. And, you know, for a book that is so ancient, it's so contemporarily relevant in terms of the questions that we ask when suffering, you know, comes down upon us. And I just found it so clarifying and, praising him for who he is and how we can
0: trust in him. Uh, So I would say those two right now. That's so great. I know Job is, uh, it's that book that hits me hard every time I read it, but I'm never sorry that I, that I went into that and (laughs) got my head in that space. Right. right. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, so powerful. Well, thank you again, Katie. God bless you. I'm looking forward to whatever you're going to produce with the second book. So, oh, thank you. Um, we will stay. We will stay aware of that, and I just am um, praying that the Lord will bless your continued work in ministry with your family and um, yeah, everything else you're going to be doing in the future. So, thank you again for joining me. Thank you so much, Bethany, for having me on, and God bless you.